This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. At all. Gasp. Um. All right, you might have noticed if you looked at our lecture schedule that the first two lectures have sort of similar titles, um, both have similar overlapping ideas, and uh, this isn't because Joshua and I don't talk to each other, it actually, actually comes out of doing the same work, and this is the thing that comes up a lot with people that we talk with, and people who come here to Libri. Um, so last week, uh, many of you were not here, which is fine, you don't have to have been here uh, last week to, to understand this week. But last week, I just want to recap a couple things that Joshua said that were really helpful in kind of setting up this topic of need and my claim in my title that to need is human. Uh, actually, I think Joshua kind of covered that last week. Um, so he described that, that as human beings from our first breath, and actually before that, even before that, we are dependent on others, not just for our physical needs to be met, but also to form even just a sense of self. We need others. Um, Joshua said it like this. He said we are dependent all the way down. Um, and he pointed out that human beings are always embodied and therefore limited by time and space. Finite. We are finite. And often I think... Uh, being finite, being limited, being dependent, we think of those things as flaws of some kind. Maybe we kind of have this sneaking suspicion that that's, oh, that's because of the fall. That's not actually how we were created originally. That's the result of the fall because of sin and all these things. But if we take into account what Joshua said, and if you weren't here, I strongly recommend that you listen to that lecture. It's on our podcast. Um, if we take that into account, we find that our limitedness our dependence is actually, those are actually features of our design. Features of the fact that we are creatures, that our existence is contingent on the existence of someone else, our creator. But that's not how we usually experience being embodied and limited to space and time and finite in other ways being dependent, we're dependent on our environment, we're dependent on others, we're dependent on God. We experience those, I think, a lot of the time, like flaws. And I'm not I'm not just thinking about the times when we're like watching superheroes flash across the screen and wish we could run that fast or teleport or mess with the space-time continuum or whatever superheroes are doing. Um, I'm not talking about that. I'm not even talking about wishing that we could upload our consciousnesses to the cloud, like some people actually are trying to do. Um, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the everyday ways that we bump up against our limits and feel like something's wrong with that. Maybe we're doing something wrong. 
So here are some examples. Have you ever felt embarrassed to ask for help? To ask for directions? <laughs> Have you ever injured yourself trying to do something by yourself that really needs at least two people to do it? Yeah. I have definitely done that. Yeah. Um, Have you ever apologized for taking up somebody's time? Have you ever apologized for taking up somebody's space? Have you ever apologized for crying? We're familiar with feeling uncomfortable with our limitations and with our needs. And one one of my main questions tonight that I hope to talk through some answers to is why do we find those postures of need so uncomfortable if they are features of our existence and not flaws? If everybody is embodied and finite, limited by space and time and dependent, then why does it feel so embarrassing sometimes, so even shameful? So um, you all have a little handout with with the outline of kind of where I'm going tonight because I don't have a PowerPoint to guide you step by step, so hopefully that kind of helps keep you oriented. So for the first half of this lecture, I'm hoping to look at four possible answers to that question. Why is needing so uncomfortable? And then I want to look at the Gospels, not so much for maybe like a rebuttal to those reasons, but for a different perspective, a different paradigm, maybe. Um, Maybe God's perspective on this. Uh, And it turns out the Bible has a lot to say about need. So first, why do we find dependence and need uncomfortable? Why do we chafe against the idea of being needy? Like That's a negative term, right, in our culture. Oh, they're so needy. I'm so needy. I'm sorry. I'm so needy. Um, So I've come up with four, four reasons. The first one is fear. Second one is our culture and society. Third is sin. And the fourth is some misunderstandings about scripture that maybe we we have. So the first one, I could say a lot more about all of these, of course, but um, I won't say everything that I could say. (laughs) Um, But we can definitely talk more in the discussion about, about each of these. But the first one is fear. We don't like coming up against our dependence, against our need, Uh, Because we're afraid. I think this fear, there's lots of things we could be afraid of surrounding this, but I think it boils down to this. Dependence means vulnerability. And in the world that we live in, after the fall, we're just used to vulnerability getting exploited. So we're afraid of being hurt and of hurting other people. Um... If you go to villain school, this is Villainhood 101. How do you get at a superhero? They're really powerful. How do you get at them? Well, you all know, you go after whoever he or she loves, right? Um, You go after Aunt May and MJ. uh, And it would be better for Spider-Man, in this case, to remain detached, remain aloof, not have any relationships with anybody, uh, to emphasize, you know, the spider and not the man, to be independent. And then the only webs involved in the story in life will be the ones he controls and not the sticky webs of human attachments. (laughs) 
of human need and vulnerability and mutuality. No one will get hurt. I think that's some of what we fear when we come up against our needs. We fear the pain that vulnerability risks. There's always that risk. I could say that I need something to someone and they could laugh in my face. Like, you are a failure of a human being. Why why are you asking me for help, right? That would really hurt. So we're going to come back to this idea of of dependence and vulnerability. Um, But I want to move to the second reason. Culture. Our society. Whatever you want to call it. Admitting need is uncomfortable because we live in a society and a culture that finds admitting need uncomfortable. It finds it embarrassing, and it sometimes even finds it kind of immoral. Parents want to raise strong, independent, self-sufficient adults. That's the goal, right? And young people want to be strong, independent young men or women, or even if they don't want to be, they know that's what they're supposed to be, trying to become... Independence, self-reliance, hard work, productivity. These are such strong values in our culture. So strong, we don't even necessarily talk about them being values. We're just like, well, yeah, of course. Um, They're so strong that failure to measure up in any of those areas, even if that failure is totally because of circumstances we cannot control, um, that can bring really deep shame. And even as Christians especially, I think, in evangelical America, this is this is just the air that we breathe. Um, I was doing some research for this <laughs> talk. Um, uh, the Internet wanted to sell me a T-shirt that said, I'm a strong, independent Christian woman who don't need no man except Jesus. That was what the T-shirt said. <laughs> I didn't buy it. I didn't buy it. Um So one one of the sources of these values, I'm not going to do the whole history of ideas, don't worry, um, but is it does come from Enlightenment rationalism, right? The time that gave us, I think, therefore I am. The fact that I have a rational will that can make choices for myself, that's what primarily makes me a human. That's an Enlightenment idea. Um or at least that's when it kind of got really injected into our society. And um, as the philosopher that Joshua referenced last week, uh, O. Carter Sneed, puts it, he says that ours is, ours is a society that is forgetful of the body and a culture that sees humans as primarily, as essentially even, solitary wills. That's a, that's a key phrase there. I think, therefore I am, I am primarily a solitary will. That's the, the most meanest of me. <laughs> So, and that's not, that's saying that's what makes me human, not the fact that I'm created by God with an identity that's contingent and dependent on him and actually on other people, too. So coming out of that, we naturally really value self-reliance. This uh, this is the water that we swim in. This is, uh, I was talking to a student here just about this. This is like the essential American myth, American dream. Um, in Poor Richard's Almanac, which Benjamin Franklin, one of our founding fathers and a prime example of the American self-made man, um, 
he included this saying. He had lots of sayings in, in the almanac. And this saying became so well-known, you probably know what, which one I'm thinking of, so well-known, so taken for granted that it was true, that some people actually thought it was from the Bible. This is the saying, God helps those who help themselves. You heard that before? It's not in the Bible. Poor Richard, Benjamin Franklin. Um, if you fast forward about 100 years to 1859, over in England, so it's not just an American problem, um, over in England, a man named Samuel Smiles, he wrote a book called Self-Help. It's kind of like the original self-help book, and it was called Self-Help. Pretty self-explanatory. Um, and it began with that same phrase, except uh, Smiles depersonalized God even farther. He said, heaven helps those who help themselves. And so between Poor Richard's Almanac and self-help on this timeline, just up the road here in Massachusetts, we've got people like Walt Whitman who are writing epic poems called Song of Myself, or Ralph Waldo Emerson with his essay that's called Self-Reliance. And towards the end of that essay, he writes, nothing can bring you peace but yourself. There's obviously a lot more nuanced argument in there um, that we won't get into, but those ideas are just kind of in the water. You might think, okay, that was a long time ago. That's surely not relevant anymore, but I think those ideas have actually kind of sunk underground, like an underground river, um, and easily are unquestioned truths that we hold to be self-evident. By working hard, you will succeed. By relying on yourself, you will find fulfillment. All you need to do is exercise your independent will and improve yourself, and you can get what you want. You can be happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. All you need to do is go to bed early and wake up early. (laughs) This is just part of our cultural error. Another piece of our cultural error is wealth. Um, And and I'm not saying that everyone is wealthy. But I'm saying our society's wealth as a whole makes it pretty easy to believe that we are solitary wills. Wealth distances us from the realities of our finiteness and our dependence. We expect to have many options available to us at all times. We expect time and distance to not be a factor in how quickly we can get the things that we want. We are not dependent on sunlight for when we can work. We are not dependent on the season for the temperature of our homes. We shrug at sicknesses that used to be taken very seriously as life-threatening. So none of these things is necessarily bad. Um, There's been a lot of good things that have come out of the wealth that we enjoy in this society. But they are features of wealth, and wealth is something that so easily deceives us into believing that happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise is kind of the human baseline. Like, we should all be able to expect that. This is the goal. This is the norm of human existence. It disguises our fundamental dependence. So this brings me to my third reason that admitting need is uncomfortable. Sin. Not, not exactly the most popular phrase out there today, word out there. Um, so, of course, there are certain areas of our life, in our lives, in which independence is appropriate. 
depends on, you know, age and life stage, there are certain things that are appropriate to be independent, and it's appropriate for a 10-year-old child to be able to feed himself, um, like, with a spoon. I don't mean, like, he should be able to grow grain and make bread or something. Maybe, I don't know. Um, it's appropriate for a college student to manage her class schedule and get where she needs to be, um, learn how to do that and get to where she needs to be at the right time. However, sometimes clinging to independence is just the good, old-fashioned sin of pride. Pride can look like wanting to be like God, but in the wrong way. Wanting to be gods, actually. Wanting to be independent, to be self-sufficient, to be in control, to be in charge. Uh, In Genesis 2, where... uh, We read about the Garden of Eden. It's amazing how many things are listed that are given to the human beings in this garden, including the garden. They're given life. The humans are given this home and this garden. They're given community. They're given each other. They're given the trees for food. The the plants don't really need a sprinkler system because there's water that flows through the garden and takes care of watering all the plants. The people are given work to do. But this givenness of things is understood. Everything is in relation to God, who's the giver. Creator and giver, creation, receivers. And this was humanity's rightful rightful place. And we're told um, that the man and the woman in the Garden of Eden were naked and unashamed. They had a place to be in in which to take up space, the space that's appropriate for a human being to take up. They weren't shrinking in shame, and they weren't puffed up in pride. Then, of course, we get to Genesis 3. And the man and woman fall into temptation to be like God by striking a blow for independence, by seizing rather than receiving. And ever since then, we know, creation has been disordered. I think it's it's important to note that with the fall, two, two things happened, at least two things, <laughs> happened to this creational feature of our dependence and our limitedness. First, the fall exacerbated our need. So with sin, death entered the world, which made us more vulnerable Before the fall, the vulnerability that is simply a logical consequence of dependence, it wasn't a threat. And we can hardly, I I can hardly imagine that because we're so used to vulnerability, meaning risking danger. Um, It's in the dictionary definition of what vulnerability is. But before the fall, there was no fear of harm, no fear of death. So it was possible to be naked and unashamed and unafraid, unthreatened. But after the fall, vulnerability became a liability. We now needed more. We needed protection. We needed healing and help like we didn't before. To a degree that we didn't before, we could say. Our good bodies became things to hide, to make disappear. They're in the way. They're, they'll betray us. They expose us. Their liabilities. 
So the fall heightened our need. It made it really acute. But at the same time, really tragically, the result of the fall is that we have nowhere to go with this acute need except ourselves. We've been separated from the source of our need supply. The fall broke the right relationship between the giver, creator, giver, and created receiver, and between people. And from that, we can see that our, we can see where our obsession with doing whatever it takes to hide and protect ourselves, protect that vulnerability and our limitations, while we frantically in the background try to shore up our defenses, all on our own. So maybe you're thinking, okay, Esther, we know this, this makes sense. But what about all the things that the Bible says about, you know, serving one another, being generous, all of those things? Yes, the Bible says those things. Didn't Jesus himself say, it is more blessed to give than to receive? Wow, I'm so glad you brought that verse up. (laughs) Here's the fourth reason that I think we find uh, receiving and needing uncomfortable. We, We misunderstand some pieces of scripture. Or maybe we've fallen into habits of reading them a particular way. Um, So the Bible does say it is more blessed to give than to receive. You probably heard that phrase thrown around. Um, But I know at least I, and maybe you too, um, kind of misheard it for a long time. I Eventually I heard a sermon that really clarified something important about this verse. And uh, so we're going to talk about grammar for a minute. For some reason, I used to do this. Uh, When I read, it is more blessed to give than to receive, I heard giving equals good, receiving equals bad. Greedy, needy, negative. You want to be the giver. Um, But that's not actually what that sentence says. It's using a comparative adjective. So just like we would say good, better, best, we would say blessed, more blessed, most blessed, right? So instead of giving equals good, receiving equals bad, we could, we should hear receiving equals blessed, giving equals more blessed. It is more blessed to give than to receive. That means receive starts us with blessed. It's blessed to receive, Why is that? When we receive, we are being ourselves as creatures. We are demonstrating the reality of our contingent, dependent existence. And there's a good rightness to that. Um, The pastor that, the the sermon that I mentioned, the speaker, he said that to receive is man-like. It's human-like. To give is God-like. That's why it's more blessed. It's good to be a human. It's blessed to be a human, actually, and to receive. But to give is God-like. God is the giver. Generosity is part of his character. He's the giver and sustainer of all of life, of being itself, of every good and perfect gift. So when we get to be in the position of the giver, when we get that opportunity, when we get to give something, 
uh, help or care or a gift to someone, we get to be like God. And this is a privilege. We get to be like God in an appropriate way because it's a privilege that he gives us. Um, It's not seizing God-likeness like Adam and Eve did, but it's a privilege that God gives us. He lets us be like him in this way. We get to show in a practical way what God is like. I think there's another way uh, besides the grammar that we read this verse um, that's that's not as helpful. Is We take it out of context. Um, this verse is found in Acts 20. Um, and it's in a speech that the Apostle Paul is giving to the elders of the Ephesian church. Um, it's really interesting. This, he quotes Jesus in his speech. Um, but we don't actually have the original source of that quote. We don't know in what context Jesus said that phrase. But we do know the context in which Paul used it. Um, Paul's making this speech to these Ephesian elders knowing that he's not going to see them again. Uh, These are dear friends of his. This is a church he helped start. Uh, Many of them are probably people that first heard the gospel from him. It's a really emotional moment. Um, Just a really uh, powerful scene. And in a sense, he's passing the baton of leadership off to, to these leaders of the church that he's helped to start. So to summarize the speech, he's kind of saying, a lot of what he's saying is, I was not a burden to you while I was with you. I didn't make unfair demands on you as your leader like I was some kind of a celebrity. I worked to meet my own needs. And then in verse 35 of chapter 20, he says, In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remember the words the Lord Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. So I think it's really interesting that we automatically assume that we are in the position of these leaders, these shepherds, these elders that he's addressing, and we're not the followers or the sheep or the weak that that Paul says need help from these leaders. Um, maybe it's sometimes appropriate to take to to say, yeah, I actually am a leader and I do need to take this seriously. Um, but I think it's interesting that that's what we all assume often. At least that's what I assumed. And to ask, why do we assume that? Why do we take that role? And is that assumption appropriate? I think that's just generally, this is just like free how to read the Bible advice right here on the side. I think in general, it is really helpful to notice that when you read a familiar Bible story, where do you tend to slot yourself in the story? Um, And why why that person? Why that one and not another person? Um, I think that's a really fruitful thing to, to do. And I'm actually going to give another example of a very familiar story from the New Testament that's about giving and receiving, um, where I think think we tend to do this. Um, In Luke 10, there's the very familiar parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, And that parable, Jesus tells that story in a dialogue that he's having with the teacher of the law. And the parable is framed by two questions. The first question the teacher of the law asks, he says, who is my neighbor? Then Jesus tells the story, you know, a familiar story about the man on the road to Jericho who gets attacked. 
different people go by, refuse to help him, until one, a Samaritan, comes by, helps him on, onto his animal, brings him to a safe place, takes care of his needs. At the end of the parable, Jesus asks his question. He says, who was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Okay, so two questions. Who is my neighbor? Who was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? So here are the parallels here. In the teacher's question, we have the teacher and his neighbor, who's a question mark. In Jesus' question, we have the man who fell into the hands of robbers and his neighbor, the Good Samaritan. So in in Jesus' question, if we overlay those, Jesus is paralleling the teacher of the law with the man left for dead on the side of the road. The teacher of the law is slotted into the role of victim, not actually as the hero of the story. So remember, this is in the context of a bigger discussion about what are the greatest commandments, and the second one in particular, love your neighbor as yourself. I think Jesus, by setting up that unexpected parallel, is asking, you want the definition for who your neighbor is? How would you want neighbor defined if you were the one left for dead on the side of the road? Go live out the greatest commandment with that definition in mind. Sometimes we are the ones with the donkey, the ones with the resources and the heart to help. And that's such a privilege. We get to give and be like God, the capital G giver. Sometimes we are the man left for dead on the side of the road, stripped and bloody. Who needs help from whoever will give it walking by. We're still blessed. Our common condition as humans is manifest, undisguised, and we get to receive help. So, touching back on on things that I said about vulnerability in the fall, all of those things. Jesus came to redeem us from the fall. What does that mean? It means all kinds of things. But one of the things it means, uh, redeem means to buy back, to transform something evil into good. Um, Jesus came to redeem our need. Not so that it disappears and we don't need anything anymore but so that that very need can become a site for glory. I'm going to say that again because this is important. Jesus came to redeem our need, not so that it disappears, but so that it can become a site for glory. And as we move into the second half of the lecture here, the second part here, um, I hope this kind of illustrates a little bit what that means. We're going to transition to look looking more closely at postures of need in the gospel. I'm calling them that. And I'm using the word postures intentionally because I want us to remember the body. But some of these things aren't technically postures. Uh, They're more states of being, positions, whatever. So bear with me in that. Um, So basically to prepare for this section, you can look at the back of your paper. There's a little diagram. I just went through the gospels and I looked at the literal physical positions of people that Jesus interacted with. Um, people that Jesus came to, that he helped in some way. Um, and so 
we've got this little diagram that's sort of like an intersecting caterpillar-looking Venn diagram because all of these postures do intersect in many ways, in more ways than I could illustrate. I'd need a 3D diagram to actually figure that out. Um, So the first posture of need that you have on there is what I'm calling lying down. Um, There are a good number of people in the Gospels that are in this position. Maybe they've collapsed. Uh, Maybe they're lying on a bed or a mat. But they're not just lying down because they're tired. They're lying down because they can't get up. So in this category, we have paralyzed people. Um, We have Peter's mother-in-law who's sick in bed. She can't get up. Uh, We have other people who are dying uh, because of diseases. And we have the dead. This seems pretty obvious. If you're lying down and you can't get up, something's wrong. You need help. Something is wrong. All right, the second posture of need. Actually, let me rewind there for a second. But also lying down, even if you could get up because you're lying down because you're tired, that also demonstrates a need. It's a posture of need. You need rest. You need to take a nap. Um, so that's the first one. Second one, second posture of need. Needing to be carried or brought. Um, so, of course, some of these overlap with the lying down people, like the paralyzed man. Uh, he was lying on a mat, and his four friends carried him to Jesus. Um, or in another story, we see the dead son of the widow of Nain. He's dead, lying down on a, I don't know, coffin thing. Um, I don't know what they had in in Judea, but they're being carried. He's being carried out by the people of the town out to the graveyard. Um, this category also includes a number of blind people that Jesus healed. They needed help to get to him. It's interesting, in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there um, there's a verse very early on kind of describing Jesus' ministry, and it says that people brought, people were bringing the sick, the lame, the blind, the demon-possessed to Jesus. So the people that Jesus was healing don't seem to be coming on their own. They are being brought by other people, maybe because they didn't have the strength to bring themselves. Maybe they didn't have the wherewithal, the mental, uh, you know, witness because of demonization or whatever. They couldn't bring themselves. They needed help getting to help. So that's that category. The third posture of need that I have on there is dirty and smelly and unclean. And I'm taking these literally and symbolically. Um, so we find people in this category, people with leprosy that Jesus interacted with. We have people who came to be baptized. Uh, that's more with John the Baptist. Um, we have people whose, uh, the disciples whose feet Jesus washed. Uh, we could put at least one of the lying down dead people here uh, because he was smelly. Lazarus, that's pointed out in the story. There's a bad smell. He's been in the tomb for a little while. But actually, all dead bodies uh, are unclean according to Jewish law. Um, and so, and similarly, was the woman with the issue of blood um, unclean because of the law, the requirements of the law. So dirty, smelly, unclean people and things need to be washed. They need purification. Okay. I'm gonna go through the keep going through these pretty fast. The fourth posture of need is small, ignored, 
hiding. I could include invisible. I don't actually even know what ended up on the handout uh, of all of those words. But basically the idea is something that somehow does not take up very much space. Maybe it's not even taking up space that it's meant to take up because something's wrong. So in this category, uh, we find the bent woman in Luke 13. She's bent over almost double and can't straighten up. Um, There's the man with the shriveled hand. And there's also that famous wee little man, Zacchaeus. Um, There's nothing wrong with him. He's just little. He just can't see over the people. Um, We could also put the woman with the issue of blood here as well because she's hiding. She doesn't want anyone to know that she's there. Um, And this this posture relates to some of what I said earlier about that fear of taking up space, maybe uh, taking up space that it's actually right for a body to fill. We're We're not meant to be invisible, but sometimes we are. And sometimes small things and small people just need extra help. Zacchaeus needed a tree to climb up to see over the crowd. Okay, two more. The fifth posture of need, crying and loud. Here we have a lot of the demon-possessed people. They come towards Jesus screaming. We also have several of the blind men that Jesus healed. They call out to Jesus, and they won't stop calling out, even when people tell them to be quiet. We also have the Canaanite woman who calls out and keeps bothering Jesus until he heals her daughter. As I was working on this uh, lecture, the phrase even not just on this part, but the phrase crying need just kept coming to my mind. I think so often that's how our needs show up. It's like a crying, like a persistent noise that doesn't go away. Also included in this category, maybe counterintuitively, counterintuitively, I've included the posture, the position of being unable to speak, speechless. And in this category, we find some other demon-possessed people, also some deaf and mute people. Crying is, is at least a resource of communication. It's something. But when a person is voiceless, unable to speak, they have even greater need because they can't even call for help. All right, the last one, this, this one's pretty self-explanatory, and it's that big oval that goes around all of them. Hungry. Jesus came to people who were hungry, and he fed them, a lot of them, all at once. Um, but also any of these people in these other categories experienced hunger. We all do. Okay, so here are the postures of need. Real quick run through again that I found through this quick survey through the Gospels. Lying down, needing to be brought or carried, dirty, smelly, unclean, small and visible, crying or unable to speak, hungry. And this was by looking at the people that Jesus came to. Who were the kinds of people that Jesus came to? Who were the people that were brought to Jesus for help? Who are the people that Jesus was eager to meet? that he had compassion compassion on. Now I want to turn to look at Jesus himself. Jesus in need. I don't know about you, but I don't think that phrase very often. But if we're going to take the body seriously, if we're going to take dependence seriously as a feature of humanness, 
then we must take seriously that when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he also experienced the dependence that we all experience. He also experienced postures of need. He was small. He was an invisible baby in a womb. He was a tiny baby in a manger. He was wordless, like all babies, but he also cried like all babies. And he also cried like all people who have emotions. He cried over his friend Lazarus. He cried over his beloved city, Jerusalem. We know that he was hungry when he fasted in the wilderness. That's sort of the most dramatic example. But we also find Jesus walking along the road, finding a tree and wondering if there's a snack in it. It's a fig tree. Um, not because he was looking for an illustration to a parable necessarily. He does end up telling a parable. But in Matthew, it tells us that Jesus looked into the tree because he was hungry. Jesus needed to be carried. His parents brought him to the temple to make the appropriate sacrifices for a newborn son. Later, they carried him to Egypt to be safe. Later, he had to borrow a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. He needed help carrying his cross. And his lifeless body was lifted down from that cross and carried to the tomb. Jesus was sometimes smelly. I know the Gospels don't explicitly say that, but he did need his feet washed. He does talk about that. Um, Even though he was sinless, he went into the waters of baptism and took that position of receiving baptism from John. He was anointed with sweet-smelling oil. And in that powerful story, when, when the woman anoints Jesus, he aligns himself with the stinky, unclean dead. He says, she has prepared my body for burial. And just like the dead and dying people that he interacted with, Jesus experienced death, lying down, totally helpless, unable to move. When the word became flesh, he took up these positions and postures of need. And the crazy thing is that that wasn't just a one-time thing that happened during his 33 years on earth. Jesus mysteriously seems to continue to take up residence, as it were, in the bodily experience of the poor and the needy. Um, In Matthew 25, he tells a parable about sheep and goats, about the day that the Son of Man, that is Jesus himself, will come for a reckoning. And it's here that the Son of Man tells the righteous that they cared for him when he was hungry, when he was thirsty, when he was a stranger, when he was naked, when he was sick, when he was in prison. And these people ask, when did that happen, Lord? When did we see you in all of those positions of need, essentially? And he says this, Jesus says, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. This is the kind of person that Jesus came for. And this is the kind of experience that he himself took up uh, when he came. And in doing so, in taking up those postures and positions of need, 
He redeemed need. He made it a site for glory, a place where God's kingdom can be made manifest. Okay, maybe you noticed that there's one group of people that Jesus came to, came for, uh, that I did not include as I was going through the list of all those different kinds of people with different needs. And it's because this group of people could fit into all of those parts of the Venn diagram, um, pretty much. We can argue finer points later, if you like. Um, in fact, if you look at all of these postures, you might feel like you're getting a portrait of a particular kind of person. A person who is actually the best example, probably, that we have of dependence and need, even when this person is perfectly healthy. What we're getting here is a portrait of a baby. So look at your diagram again. It's not a caterpillar. It's a little sleeping baby. So all three synoptic gospels tell about a time when parents brought their small children, and Luke explicitly says babies, to Jesus so that he can touch them and bless them. And Jesus is really excited to do this in contrast to his disciples. And he takes the babies in his arms and he blesses them and he rebukes his disciples with these very well-known words. He says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. This isn't the only place where Jesus talks about the, the way to receive the kingdom of God is to become like a little child. And sometimes people, you may have heard of this interpreted like, oh, that means we need to be humble to receive the kingdom of God. And that's not necessarily wrong, but humility is not what I think of when I think of a baby. I mean, I don't think of it at all. It's not like I think babies are so arrogant or something. I just don't think of it. Um, some are. No. What, the word that I would use is needy. A baby is a bundle of need. A bundle of crying need. Um, A bundle of neediness and limitedness and dependence undisguised by any pretenses or accessories. And this is how we all begin. That's how we all began. And while we gain varying levels of independence as we grow up, that position, that reality is just one illness, one accident, one lonely day, or a few years away from being unhidden in us again. And Jesus is saying that this is the way to receive the kingdom of God. And of course, receive is also a key word here. Recognize your need. Admit that you have nothing to offer. Like the little children, you can't even carry yourself in the door. This point is driven home even further by the fact that in all three gospel accounts of the little children, um, that's immediately followed by a narrative that we sometimes call the rich, call the rich young ruler. I'm not really sure why we think he's young. It doesn't say that he's young. Um, but maybe it's because he runs up to Jesus in Mark. He's just an energetic young fellow. Um, he runs up, he kneels before Jesus to ask, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He and Jesus talk about the commandments. The young young man says he's kept them since he was a child. And then this is what happens uh, in Mark's version. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. 
One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. One thing you lack. You who have it all are missing one thing. And what is that one thing? It's the one thing that the babies had. Need. To Jesus, that negative space of need, that hole, is actually a positive good. It's the positive good that is necessary for entering the kingdom. And that's why Jesus goes on to say it's so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. They, we, have so much stuff, so many safety nets, so many cushions that disguise the reality of our dependent position and make it difficult to admit our inability to save ourselves. You maybe noticed that running and even kneeling were not in my list of postures of need. The rich man brought himself eagerly to Jesus and brought himself away sad. He was carrying too many accessories to fit through the eye of the needle. In the book of Revelation, Jesus uh, says to the church in Laodicea, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. I do not need a thing. And then Jesus gives this reality check. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. This is a a really strong warning from Jesus. It's the poor in spirit, those who recognize their need who are blessed and to whom belongs the kingdom. Jesus doesn't leave that church there. His warning is a grace. It's a gift. It's a, it's a promise. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. I have what you need. Come to me for it. So I'm going to conclude with another incident uh, that I think is is one where we tend to see ourselves as one character in particular and come away with one, you know, straightforward to do takeaway. Um, I think this narrative offers us maybe some more nuances than just this is the one thing to do after this, hearing this. It's, again, a very familiar story. On the night that Jesus had his last meal with his disciples... His last meal before he died. He had meals afterwards. Um, His last meal before he died with his disciples, he got up from the table and did something shocking. You know this story. He took off his coat, he rolled up his sleeves, and he did the job of a slave, washing his disciples' feet. When he reached Peter, Peter said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And then Peter, in his typical fashion, goes overboard and says, Then, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. You know how that goes on. Um, The lesson, right, the lesson, the takeaway from this story is that we are supposed to serve one another, right? Uh, Jesus says this. He says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Seems pretty straightforward. Um, And this is a necessary example for us. 
It is not comfortable. It's not usually our first instinct to take the place of a slave and kneel and wash someone else's dirty, stinky feet. But I think we can also be Peter in this story. One of our brothers or sisters adopts a posture of service, of help, of care, of giving towards us, and we say, no, 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 I couldn't possibly let you do that. We refuse to take the corresponding posture of receiving, of need. So most of this lecture has been focused on our need before God. We are dependent on him because we are creatures and he is our creator. But stopping there, I think, could leave us with the unhelpful, uh, in the unhelpful position of the strong, independent Christian woman t-shirt. It's just me and Jesus. Thank you. I'm fine. I don't need you. But God has given us himself and his family. And another way to say this might be God has given us himself and his body. Over and over in the New Testament, we see that the church, the people of God, is called the body of Christ. And I don't think that this is just just a metaphor. Like I pointed out earlier, Jesus tells us he's present in the bodily experiences of the least of his brothers. Jesus meets our needs through his body. In other, so in other words, we need each other. We need to serve. We need to serve one another, which means that some of us, some of the time, need to admit our need and accept the help, the gifts, the support, the care of our brothers and sisters. The musician Michael Card has a song about this uh, this uh, story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Um, it's not actually a song I like very much, but there's one phrase in it that I found super helpful in understanding this. Um, And he says, the song says this, the parable can live again when one will kneel and and one will yield. One will kneel and one will yield. Jesus' command that we follow his example is is for us to wash one another's feet. One kneels with the basin and the towel and one yields and takes off his shoes. If everyone is the foot washer, then whose feet are being washed? If one person is always the foot washer to everybody else, then when are her feet being washed? Both postures are uncomfortable, but both are necessary for us to follow Jesus' example. Both of those postures are necessary for acting out the realities of the kingdom of God. And I think that's pretty glorious. So I'm going to stop there. And uh, give you a second, and then we can turn to a time of discussion and questions. There's also, if you need to go, I will not be offended if you step out. Um, but usually at this time, we have a chance to have some discussion and some questions as well.
Jesus addressed so often was people's sin mm-hmm. and their their need for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And even when the paralytic gets dropped down through the roof, you know, he says, "Your sins are forgiven." Mm-hmm. And so, and and with some people, Jesus's reaction to them was because they didn't admit their need mm-hmm. for forgiveness. Right. And I think that that struggle that we all have that way with Jesus, and then goes on to how we then forgive others, mm-hmm. and. It is the same pain, the same kind of struggle we have with when we think we're the one who's supposed to help somebody, and then even as mundane a thing as then we break our leg, and other people have to give up mm-hmm. what they were going to do and serve us. Mm-hmm. There's, there's not a. I guess what I'm saying is, I think there's not a break between our need to be cleaned spiritually by Jesus Mm -hmm. and forgiven and our need to relate to one another that way. Right. But it's very painful Mm -hmm. because of of Mm -hmm. the fall. Yeah. Yeah. It just hurts. Yeah. But then it's... Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's really interesting, too, just, yeah, going off of what you said, not not necessarily like answer that wasn't a question that was a a helpful statement um is um that like all of these postures like physical postures of need those are also um or they could be metaphors that are used for our state of sin like you know paul says like we're dead being in sin is you're dead in your sin um you're unclean like all of those things um could refer to either like a spiritual state or physical state like both yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah I just I really like your question of where is it that you see yourself in this story because I think so often the way I approach the text is the fact that I'm reading the story means that I have so much and that mm-hmm. I'm the person who has something to give mm-hmm. it's just sort of like a default mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and it's kind of my blood thing. It really is the other way. Mm-hmm. It's both at the same time. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, you talk about the fact that it's godly to give, but it's also godly to receive. God receives our praise. He receives our mm-hmm. praise. He doesn't receive them out of need, though. Right. Because he doesn't need anything. Mm-hmm. But, but it still is godly to do both. Right. And so... Um, God does equip us, and so, you know, you gave the example, and, and Tim Keller mentions this too, that, you know, if your son is eight and says, you know, gee, can I go out and play with my friends, and, you know, that's an appropriate thing to do, but if he's 22 in a college and college and says, can I go play the quad with my friends, that wouldn't be appropriate, mm-hmm. because he's been equipped, he's been taught, mm-hmm. and, and so, so a lot of times... Our ability to give is based on where we are mm-hmm. spiritually, our maturity level, and mm-hmm. um, but we're always constantly in a state of needing and being able to give. Right. And and one of the things that's interesting is too is that 
we actually receive when we're giving. Or, or, or yeah, mm-hmm. when we're receiving when we're giving. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a great thing because basically what we're doing is just taking what God is giving us mm-hmm. and turning on giving it to somebody else. Yeah. So in mm-hmm. a sense, you know, both is happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really helpful to point out. Even, like, using Ruth's example, like, yeah, maybe you help different people in different ways all the time, then you break your leg, you're in a position where you need help that maybe you wouldn't need all the time, you know? You need it for an amount of time. So, yeah, it's this dynamic situation of of giving and receiving in various ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Dick. In some of this discussion, I've gotten confused as I've gone along by the use of the word autonomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, not by you tonight, but by because uh, psychologists use it in one way, mm-hmm. in a way that most of us could approve of. Uh, someone becomes autonomous as they are freed from their from the total time of supervision with their parents. And they become a free person. If the parents succeed in raising them, they will, if the schools succeed in, in teaching them, so they'll be increasingly uh, independent in that sense out mm-hmm. of needing to, to always add other, other people. Philosophers use the word independence. Or people use the word independence. You use the word autonomy. And, and, or do people use it philosophically as independent of God. Mm-hmm. I don't want anybody telling me what to do here. Mm-hmm. Not just parents. But nobody gets to tell me. And even someone like Lewis was talking. You see, it's, I will bring up Lewis here. That's <laughs> been your attention. Uh, uh, he... One of his reasons he, he, he didn't become a Christian for a long time was that I said, I don't want anybody meddling in my decisions. Mm-hmm. I make my own decisions. Mm-hmm. And that's an autonomy that's a totally different thing, mm-hmm. uh, which is very self-centered, totally destructive, very much built on Genesis 3-5 sin. You will be like God, knowing good and evil, determining what good and evil is. And... and uh, that's autonomy is a very destructive thing. Mm-hmm. So, and yet the, the word is the same word. Yeah. And it, it's, it's very easy to get, to get um, confused. Yeah, that's, that was really helpful clarification. You say it's easy to get confused, but what you just said was really clarifying, so thank you. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think sin is the big monkey wrench <laughs> because we're not just neutral. Mm-hmm. The Bible says that we are actually antagonistic towards God mm-hmm. so we're not just missing it we're actively looking for anything other than God to meet our needs mm-hmm. and so thinking about posture it, it's really the posture of the heart um, because you had the two other thieves on the cross who were about as needy as you can get next short of death and they had no interest in they were only insults at Jesus. They had no interest, even though they had a need. Mm-hmm. And then you had the rich young ruler who came in a posture of plenty and was as needy as anybody out there. Mm-hmm. And so a big part of it is is our own reluctance to want to acknowledge our neediness because of sin, but it also makes it difficult when we try to talk to other people mm-hmm. about their neediness because they're 
you know, people who don't know the Lord are actively looking for anything other than God to fill their needs because they don't want to accept it. Yeah, Lydia. I was just thinking too that um, you know, with the emphasis in the past hundreds of years on just increasing individuality, they were starting to see the fruits of that now, thinking about the the loneliness epidemics that we're seeing across many many different countries. And obviously fruits are not good. <laughs> <laughs> like when you're abandoning those relationships in which you're like neediness is a given, like where you're gonna be in relationships Yeah, it, that reminds me of um, a conversation. A lot of uh, people in maybe more collectivistic, if you want to call it, societies and cultures where families will live together multi-generationally and stuff. You probably heard this. Can, sometimes they're horrified at like how Americans treat their old people. Maybe heard this before. Um, like you don't. Why are your grandparents not living with you? Like why are you not taking care of them? You like put them away in this like home it's not even a home right um and that's true like i think we do not do a great job as a society of caring for our old people but also a lot of our old people don't want to be taken care of by anybody mm-hmm. because they also want to be autonomous and independent um even when they are getting more and more needy as as their health declines so there's there's that two, there's those two sides right like it's not. It's not a one-way, a one-way thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the flip side of neediness is trusting. <clears throat> like, like even in the garden, we were needy. We were dependent on mm-hmm. God. I mean, God literally holds every atom together at every moment. If He ever decided to stop, things would just cease. <clears throat> but I think sin has requ- now requires us to trust. Um, there's a poem by a guy named Malcolm Guyton. He has a line in it where he talks about in the garden there was no need to believe. And that line always struck me because it's like, it's just what we knew. It was reality. There was mm-hmm. no need to believe or to have to decide about anything because it was right there. Mm-hmm. But as soon as sin was introduced, now all of a sudden we had to, we had to trust other people for um, to tell us the truth, to not betray us, to not take advantage of us. And mm-hmm. Without being God, without being omniscient, we have no way to know everything. So it forces us to have to trust people. Mm-hmm. And I think that trusting gets to the fear thing that you talked about mm-hmm. first. And I think that gets to the loneliness thing because a lot of people would love to be in a community where they can they can trust people, but so much of what's happening in our culture is breaking all that down that, um, that even though people may even recognize their need, they, they don't know where to turn because they don't know who to trust. Mm-hmm. Hey, all I need is my cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm really grateful for my GPS because mm-hmm. I get lost a lot. <laughs> but I do feel mm-hmm. that the cell phone phenomenon has just gotten out of hand. Mm-hmm. I mean, everywhere you look, 
people are. <coughs> I mean, they're even walking it to wonder people don't trip more. Yeah. But it's attached to it, the hands. It is yeah. an addiction, mm-hmm. and it is constant entertainment. You know, maybe mm-hmm. you, I don't have a lot of games on my phone. Maybe I would feel differently if I did. You know, if I could play these wonderful games. But I also find it at a time where um, we're more detached than ever mm-hmm. from one another because we're constantly, yeah, we've constantly got this thing, and it fulfills our every need. You know, mm-hmm. if I need to know about Zeus, I just look it up mm-hmm. on Google. You know, Google is all I need. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's one of those. I, I would say that's like a feature of wealth. That's one of those features of wealth that cushions us from actually recognizing our need for other people, for you know, our need, our dependence on the earth and on you know gravity to work and all of those yeah. things. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was a good example. Uh, Mirza and then Lenny. Um, I think even reaching out and helping people, especially people you don't know, can actually express your own need mm-hmm. as well. I find that, um, yeah, I, I've i always prayed for God to give me opportunities to help people and to shine Christ's light, especially when I see people on the side of the road asking for money and things like that. Um, but I have to wrestle with myself of, of, about being vulnerable. Is this person trying to take advantage of me? Or is, is what I'm going to do really helpful to this person. So it's a vulnerability to God and also a vulnerability to that person making myself available to help that person. Mm-hmm. Or even people I do know and I'm not sure want my help. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a place of vulnerability to mm-hmm. it shows my need to trust God and to to trust that the other person won't take advantage of me. Or that if that person does take advantage of me, it's still going to be Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm still going to be okay somehow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's good. Yeah, Lenny. Yeah. I just, I mean, you, you've said it, but I just, I feel like the, the image of being members of a body mm-hmm. is so, so rich mm-hmm. that you can, to just mm-hmm. really take hold of that and think about what that's saying. Mm-hmm. You know, What's the point of a thumb? What's the thumb by itself? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's nothing. <laughs> it's got to have everything else to, mm-hmm. to be useful. I mean, it just—it's—it's it's such an amazing mm-hmm. image to just really dwell on. That yeah. That's what we are. We are members of a body, mm-hmm. and we are made for that. Yeah. So yes, we're dependent on God totally, completely, mm-hmm. but, we, but we're also meant to be. You know, not the solitary you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> Christian, but, but but really dependent on one another. As yeah. Members of the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There were more pages to this lecture sure. that got cut <laughs> that were about that. But but yeah. I just think it's, it's really, really rich and rich. Yeah. I mean, the letters to the Corinthians and Ephesians talk about that so much in really rich ways. I mean... Should, can the eye say to the hand, I don't need you, right? Yeah. Oh, well, we actually do say that to each other all the time. <laughs> all right, exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Michaela. Um, this was like 16 years ago now, but I read an article when I was pregnant with Abby and Ellie about uh, postpartum depression, and 
cultures that had no, women had no experience of postpartum depression. And they were all cultures that were very tribal and communal, where women's needs were just met, like the baby and the mom. It was the only need that the mother had was to feed the baby, and everything else was done. Mm-hmm. In the tribe or community, the washing, the feeding, and everything. And how in America, like the higher, the higher <laughs> rates of postpartum depression were also just sort of the more independent, mm-hmm. more educated, wealthy people were, mm-hmm. women were experiencing postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. And it's just mm-hmm. a really interesting take on like the assumption is that I don't need it. Oh, it's fine. I'm just going to take a newborn home, cook dinner for my family, and just get right back into it. Mm-hmm. But uh, cultures where that just had a high, high value on um, new life. Mm-hmm. The women didn't experience what we experienced as postpartum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you? Did someone up here have a? Did you have a hand up? No. I saw him up here. Yeah, Emily. I think it's pretty ironic that in the American church, we talk about how we need God for all of our lives, but something we're really bad at dealing with is a long-term need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Honor. Like, okay, you break your leg, you need help. That's great. We'll, we'll set up a list. We'll do a meal train. We'll help you out. We'll get you literally and figuratively back on your feet. You get in a car accident. You're going through chemo. You have a baby. The church is here for you. You have long-term problems. You have problems that are maybe a little more destructive. God forbid you go on government assistance. Mm-hmm. Well, that's your fault. You just didn't, you know, do the work that you were supposed to. You must be slipping somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, that can be the experience for sure. And that's, I think that's that can be a piece. I didn't, I didn't say this, but I had done some thinking. I've done some thinking about like. Sometimes we think that the way that Jesus redeems need is because he fixes it. He heals it right now. Um, and and that's where God's glory is shown. Um, and that is true. Like, God's glory is shown when, when there's healing uh, immediately or quickly. But I think sometimes, I think we need to think more about how is needing and receiving help long term how does that still a site where God's glory can be manifest um, you know someone who has a disability their entire life what what is where where is the glory there and I think it is there um, but it's not in that person being alone <laughs> um, I think it has to do with the care that they, need and receive, hopefully receive, um, but also then in the community that that, that can build around that. Um, I'm not articulating this very well because this was sort of a, a thought where I was still mulling that over um, this afternoon when time was up. Um, but yeah, I think, and thinking more about like, what, is, what does Jesus mean when he says he's present in the need of the least of his brothers? Um, what is yeah? What does that look like? And having an imagination for that, I think, is is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, John. Yeah, I think 
I mean, people go through different seasons, so mm -hmm. they might it might be in a season of loneliness. So somebody who's in a season, like like um, a, a newlywed couple might not like empathize with a lonely person mm -hmm. at that season, but there might be down the road. Do you know what I mean? So it might be tough to connect. And um, mm -hmm. I had a situation during the pandemic where a group of guys like started a text thread to like support each other, and I was living alone, and I was like, feeling kind of lonely, and I, f I feel like there was kind of like silence to that, but then somebody wrote like, the AC in my car died, and everyone's like, oh, did you try this, or did you try that, and you know, and I, I feel like something like somebody's AC broke, being broken is more like relatable in any season, but mm -hmm. not everyone's going to grasp that somebody's going through loneliness, so, mm -hmm. but I, I don't know, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know if it's just in issue that men face or women face, but I, I find that when there's like a physical need, um, mm -hmm. like fixing a truck or something, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, you know, it's just, yeah. like, that's why people might hide because it's like, you know, if my truck's broken, they'll, they'll want to help, but if I'm feeling lonely, they're just, they're not going to want to hear it, you mm -hmm. know, or, yeah. or there's this perception that it might drag them down too. Mm -hmm. That's what makes them vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah, the That's thing might be that they do relate, and it's yeah. like, ouch, oh, he, yeah, me too, actually, but it's really hard to say that, because um, that's also showing then, like, your vulnerability is showing, right? Like, actually, we all <laughs> experience loneliness at some, at some point, maybe constantly, you know, and we, but we, like, cushion ourselves, right, with noise and things to pretend we're not so you were brave to say that actually and I'm sorry <laughs> that they didn't respond mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. I, I think that her point gets to um, something really important about the, uh, the the attitude and the expectations of the church mm. um on one hand, we have verses, you know, God is for us, who can be against us, and God has come to redeem, and one of the names of God is healer, and and so we, I think that we tend to have this expectation, we know that ultimately, in when this life is over, and this world is over, that God is going to wipe away every tear, and he's going to set everything right, but I think we have an expectation that God is going to do that all the time here in this life. Mm -hmm. And I think that when it comes to people expressing needs that maybe whether we realize it or not, there's a, a subliminal, subtle thought that, well, gee, if you have the same need five years from now that you had before, then you have grown as a Christian. You haven't mm -hmm. got, you know, it's like, or you have to admit that maybe God, God, hasn't God hasn't delivered the mm -hmm. way that you thought that he would deliver. Mm -hmm. But your comment about the fact that God meets us in our need, I mean, part of the reason why he allows trials and doesn't rescue us from them immediately is because he wants us to turn to him and be dependent. Mm -hmm. But I think that in some ways, some of what people are talking about may have to do with an expectation that the church has about how mm -hmm. God works that may not be, because there are some people that do literally have lifetime needs and, and, mm -hmm. and things that, that God doesn't choose to, to fix in this life and 
it does kind of change your your perception of God and, and what the expectation is depending on how you look at that. Yeah. I think that's another place where Lenny's comment about really looking and thinking through seriously about those passages where it talks about the church as a body. Um, oh, I don't have my notes in front of me, but um, Google Bible right here. Uh, when Paul is really talking about the body, of, um, he talks about those members that are weaker being treated with special honor. Um being given special care. So when, you know, if you have, like, permanent, I don't know, I can't think of any problems right now, but, like, permanent foot pain just because there's something weird about your foot and it can't be fixed, um, your body isn't like, well, you're not my foot anymore, you know? Like, it's (laughs) still your foot. Like, it's still there. Um, And it's actually treated with special care and attention because... um, because it is a weaker, a weaker member. Yeah, it's in First Corinthians twelve, um, where it says um, the parts, uh, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. We don't, we don't believe that <laughs> easily. I don't think. But what does that mean? If that's true, if that's the word of God, then what is that? What would that look like in our churches if we thought that the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable? I think that definitely deserves some thought. Yeah. I think a lot of our churches in general would look would look very much different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as I've gotten older, I've I've kind of settled on an approach that uh, that I know is kind of almost a minor heresy, but that I will I will put on the mask when I go to church. I will not show vulnerability in an evangelical church. It's just it's just a bad strategy. It's not gonna work. Mm-hmm. So I just put it on. I know that's wrong mm-hmm. but I kind of just settled on that. Mm-hmm. Because I've not been hurt too many times mm-hmm. by having been vulnerable in the church, and the church just doesn't want to hear about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Sorry about that. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think this is something for us who are part, like who are members of a local church, to actually think about seriously. Um, yeah, whether. But to also not just assume the position in the story that, like, oh, so I'm the one who has to, like, make sure the weaker ones are being taken care of. Like, maybe I'm the weaker one. Um, and in that case, I maybe need help expressing that or explaining that to people who maybe don't understand. So how, do, how does that happen? That's going to take imagination. It's going to take work, creative work, um, to figure that out. Um, but I do think that's there, and I do know that Jesus is in that, is present in that need and in that weakness. Um, so with that, I'm going to close us this evening, and thank you all for being here. Um, maybe we'll see you again next week or week after. There's some schedules out in the front. If you want to pick up a paper copy of the lecture schedule, you can grab one of those. Thank you all.